Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors, and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. Hello, this is James Scotland. When you hear this, I'll be on holidays in Morocco, riding a camel and and or enjoying a desert sunset or some other equally nice event. So for your listening pleasure, we're re-releasing the test recording we did when we were considering supply circles. It's a wonderful, interesting and engaging conversation with a circular economy emerging leader. I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Hello, I'm James Scotland, the General Manager of Supply Chain Resilience at the Australian Industry Group. And in this podcast, I interview supply chain professionals and influencers, and we discuss the latest ideas and concepts in supply chain improvements in Australia today. We especially want to discuss uh, the current big three challenges of digitalization, decarbonization, and ongoing disruptions. And we're also going to talk about the uh, plans and progress in designing modern supply chains that are moving from inefficient linear thinking to the sustainable circular economy system design. This podcast is about moving from supply chain to supply circles. And today we're going to talk about uh, the circular economy equation in Australia. Today I want to get an insight into where we actually are at with the circular economy. And to do this, I thought I'd get a different perspective, a different view, a fresh perspective. So I've asked my colleague at AI Group, Rachel Wilkinson, to join us and talk about what's going on at AI Group and elsewhere. Rachel has an interesting vantage point from which she sees developments unfold. And so it's going to be great to get her uh, view on the show. But before I get to Rachel and introduce you to her, some context as I see it. In the time that I've been in business, and that's been a while, the Western world has been focused and committed to continuous economic growth. The higher the number, the better we all are. And it's worked. We've got a good lifestyle in the Western world. But this has created some interesting dynamics, including the need to continually meet and exceed sales targets. I've lived that target for many years. And product design became focused on ensuring ongoing sales. It created inbuilt obsolescence and technology obsolescence and fashion obsolescence. Everything from clothes to cars to phones to TVs to uh, machinery we use in our factories, everything was designed to be constantly replaced. We recreated a system that many call the take-make-waste system. Take it out of the ground, make a product, use it, and throw it away. It was predicted, uh, predicated on an endless supply uh, source and an endless source of resources. It was predicated on the waste being we produce every day. When we threw it away, that, that product no longer had any value to us. But now, with resources becoming increasingly more difficult to source and Australia becoming increasingly required to be self-sufficient, to have sovereign capability, People are starting to recognize the need to utilize all of the resources available to us, all of the limited resources on this island, not just the resources below the ground, but everything above the ground, to move from a linear, single-source system to the more efficient, more sustainable, circular system. But how do we do this? How do we change a system that has treated us very well for over 70 years and given us a high level of living? So let's ask Rachel. Rachel Wilkinson does advocacy and stakeholder engagement and policy advice for AI Group, especially for all things circular economy. 
She is an experienced and respected advocate and voice for Australian industry on public policy, stakeholder engagement and industry development. Amongst a host of responsibilities, she coordinates AI Group's involvement in the well-respected Product Stewardship, Product Stewardship Centre of Excellence. And this is proving to be a significant voice. What about Rachel? After graduating from Uni of Tasby, she worked for the Fair Work Ombudsman and then went to Canada for a few years before returning to Australia, where she has quickly established a strong reputation for advocacy and stakeholder engagement with AI group members and with other business leaders. So it's great to have someone uh, of Rachel's unique position and background on the show. Hello, Rachel. Did I get the introduction right? Is that what you do for a job? <laughs> Hi, James. Yes, that's what I do for a job. You've got it right. Um, you know, I spent some time in Canada, not much, not as much as you, mainly on um, the um, on the East Coast uh, in French Canada. But, boy, does that have a great history and it's a, a really nice people, beautiful scenes. Did you Did you like Canada? Yes, I absolutely loved it there. Um, obviously, I was over on the West Coast in Vancouver for the time that I was there. Um, and I was very grateful to them for having me. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's lots of stories. We'll have to talk about that one day. Uh, one day, I'll get it out of you. Uh, anyway, we better get to business. In the intro, I spoke of the need to rethink the use of resources and the design of supply chains. Um, as I said, it's often called circular economy. But let's get it clear. What do you think about when people say the term circular economy? Yeah, absolutely. And definition is important, James. Um, so having a singular or agreed definition is essential in, in something like circular economy that requires a high degree of coordination. The Alan MacArthur Foundation is quite an authority in this space um, and I think their definition is a pretty good one to work from. And that's basically um, the idea of gradually decoupling economic activity from the consumption of finite resources and just designing waste out of the system. So what's cool about it is it's a system-wide approach which is underpinned by a transition to renewable energy sources and energy efficiency. So it's kind of addressing a number of our problems in, in one package, um, which is a bit of a boon when you consider the pile of environmental issues that we've got to deal with these days. Um, and then finally, it's sort of based on three principles. So you're designing out waste and pollution, you're keeping products and materials in use, and you're regenerating natural systems. In uh, our, my other podcast, What on Earth, our colleague, Tenet Reid, says that Australia is very good at building big things and at doing big projects. Australia is good at big. And what you just described is big. It's a, it's, it's, it's a big, big inter, uh, integrated project. Why are we not further along the path of circular economy? It would seem to be natural for Australia. Well, we're good at big projects, but I'm not quite sure what our track record is on big systems overhauls. Um, but in short, I would say the answer is it's just it's really hard to do. Um, it requires a huge amount of coordination, a change in consumer behaviours and, and a whole host of other changes to the way that we do things. Um, so because of that, the policy, regulatory and consumer environment needs to be right. Um, and it does seem to be right now. So this is really not a new idea. It's a bundling or a new bundling of concepts that we sort of already had. And to that end, 
I'm often astounded actually at how many product designers and engineers I speak to who have been disheartened over the years. They've learned about circular and sustainable design at uni, but there's been no business case or ability to use it in their careers. But at the same time, as I said, the time being now, there is a notable, a notable sort of anecdotal shift where they're sort of expressing excitement that they're finally, there's a business case there now that they start to get to use this knowledge that they have. Yeah, I, I've seen plenty of reports recently where CEOs are saying that sustainability is now one of their biggest issues. In fact, many reports are saying the CEOs are saying it is their biggest issue, that if they don't nail this, if they don't get this sorted out, uh, the business will, will suffer. Have you had examples of, of, of how those how it's changing? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's exactly right. The world is changing and switched on CEOs and business leaders know this and you can see the changes in attitudes that a number of big brands have had. And I always say that circular economy is the next frontier for industry and at times sometimes so emphatically that I give off a real tinfoil hat vibe. <laughs> but I think I'm being proven right as the months and years go on. Um, but I can certainly give you a few spark notes for what's changed in the last couple of years that's really accelerating this process. Sure. That's what, that's what the podcast is about. Let's hear. Yeah, this, <laughs> All right. I, I'm, no in, I'm intrigued. Fantastic. So. First off, the China sword policy came in a few years ago, um, which started a bit of a ripple effect that stopped Australia exporting its problems. Um, and it led to a lot of contaminated waste staying in Australia. And it led to us having to accept that we actually don't have the processing capability for a lot of the, the stuff that we're collecting. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a, your first sort of trigger for this change. Then the government responded to that with more policy and regulatory intervention. We got the Recycling and Waste Reduction Act in 2020, big piece of legislation, um, which in the mix uh, bans the export of certain kinds of unprocessed waste. And it includes provision for government to more easily regulate um, things like product stewardship activity. And it also included um, around the same time, the government included a lot of funding initiatives to help support industry to, to do more in the product stewardship space. And then the, the final... Well, yeah, the, just yeah. let me understand that. So did China refuse to take our waste or did we stop, just stop sending it? Are we becoming one big giant dump, are we? <laughs> uh, well, if we don't get our act together, we could become a giant dump, yes, um, noting that it is our own waste, so it is our responsibility. But in the first yeah, instance, yeah. it was China that banned mm -hmm. us sending our waste there and then other countries, particularly in the developing world, uh, followed suit, so it created a bit of a domino effect. And the reason for that is, you know, it was going – Basically, unethical things were happening with what we were exporting. Right, it was not right. being recycled. It was being thrown into rivers and all sorts of other environmental horrors, basically. So we've, we've, uh, we've, we've stopped exporting our waste. New regulations came in from the government. And then what happened? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've stopped exporting our troublesome waste. There are certain uh -huh. things we can still export, of course. But the other big thing going on at the moment, and it's hard to uh, open a new site without tripping over it, is that Australia are committed to net zero by 2050. We're signatories to the Paris Agreement. Uh, climate change is very much on the agenda. Um, and we know from our friends, of course, at Ellen MacArthur again, um, that we can do about 55% 
of the, of the, for lack of a better term, net zero thing through renewables and energy efficiency. But that leaves 45% of the problem coming from products and materials efficiencies and land use still there to be solved. So basically, half the problem is requiring a circular intervention. So I don't think you need to be any kind of genius to know that 100% of a problem doesn't get solved by dealing with about half of it. So we've got no choice, really, if we'd like to achieve net zero. This is fascinating because we talk a lot about net zero and uh, the, the, uh, the other side of it, which is just reducing your, your carbon footprint. There's, there's two different challenges there for businesses. Um, but in those conversations about what can we do to stop emitting carbon, not this secondary issue, the, the obvious next part. So what can we do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just to, to stop take, I guess, then in light of that second part, as you say, um, industry in Australia is now facing dwindling export opportunities for our unprocessed waste. Um, we've got this imperative to transition to net zero, both through energy and materials efficiency. And we've got a government now way more well positioned and motivated to use regulatory interventions um, to achieve desired outcomes. But that's that's not even all of it, because that sounds like a lot, James, but there's more. <laughs> there's more. The investor <laughs> community, in the same way that they became interested in climate change, you know, ESG, asking questions yeah. of investors, sure. ESG, they're now asking questions about circular economy because, of course, they're now recognising the size of that problem and mm. the risk associated. And it's their job to manage risk. And then finally, the big one, and we've discussed this offline, James, is the consumers themselves are demanding businesses to behave in a way that's more ethical and more sustainable. And EY are actually saying at a global level, over 44% of consumers are saying they want to buy more from organisations that benefit society, and 30% of them are saying they're actually willing to pay a premium for that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because we've been talking about this for a little while, about the fact that consumers are prepared to pay a premium and want to pay a premium. They are saying we won't use those companies that are not sustainable. And yet with many conversations we had, people were saying, yeah, you know, the person in the street says that, but when it gets down to the crunch, they don't do that. I would think that uh, there's been articles from Oracle and Anaplan, and a whole bunch of people that do this for a living who have said, no, we have got proof that people are more interested in sustainable brands. We've heard of councils being told, um, if you don't start you know, improving your, the recycling, if you don't start using less carbon, we're going to, to push back against who's running our councils. At a local level, this is a big deal. And if for me, the... The commentary was that this was the, the last federal election was going to be a car key election. It was going to be about security, but it turned out to be a green election, didn't it? So I think we can now say there is pressure from investors, from government, and also from our consumers. Is that, I think that's what you're saying. And so I guess I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, I think that's very fair to say. And I, I think you can look to the last election that it was essentially a green election. It was fought and won on climate in the view of a lot of very credible people. Um, and of course, there is such a strong connection between mitigating climate change and a need to go circular, move away from linear um, processes. So yeah, I think we're in total agreement, James. <laughs> Well, we might not be in the next in the next part because I think that product design is an important ingredient 
of the circular thinking, of the no-waste thinking. You design products so that they don't have this inbuilt obsolescence. Um, and it drives sales and growth by making sure that the products collapse. Is that what you're hearing? Is that the way that you see it? No. So I think we do have to debunk that thinking about um, built or, or planned obsolescence to a degree. Um, just noting that, you know, in any market or in any situation in life, there are always one or two nefarious players. So I am speaking more broadly than that. But AI Group did a heap of member consultation through the right to repair inquiry, which was run by the Productivity Commission. And um, our members took a real grilling from the commissioners and fair enough, rightly so, that's what they were there for. Um, but the final report reflected the evidence presented by our members and I'm sure other associations and other businesses. And it found that and I quote, <laughs> while it's not possible to exclude that some manufacturers engage in strategies to intentionally reduce the product lifespans, such practices are unlikely to be widespread. <laughs> and to sort of go into what AI Group was saying about it, and we are quoted in the report just as a humble brag for anyone who might like to, to have a little look and search the term AI group. A humble brag from Rachel Wilkinson, humble. Okay. A humble brag over here that we did make the report. It was, um, you know, a nerd excitement for me. Um, but at any rate, basically what we're saying is that the short product um, life cycle of a lot of our products is pretty easily explainable by the competitive pressures that manufacturers are under. They need to supply products that meet consumer needs and um, meet the the requirements of the consumer basically, but at the lowest possible price because as you've mentioned for the last 70 years, that's been pretty much our model. Um, so an extended product life or being more durable isn't really valuable to consumers who are expecting to use something briefly and wanting to upgrade it rapidly to get the new sparkling thing. Um, so really price pressure, having to produce things cheaply because that's what consumers want and also consumers wanting to upgrade things quickly and favoring new things um, are very legitimate and real challenges. And, you know, what looks like a sort of nefarious plan to shorten the life of a product is often um, far less excitingly explained by just that. Yeah. I, I, we'll, we'll pick this up in another podcast, I think. Uh, it's if you look at the current way of doing business, what you're saying is 100% correct. Uh, there is a push to rethink business models. So, for example, in uh, electric vehicles uh, coming in, there's, a, there's an idea of saying, why does every single household have to have a car? And there's people of the younger generation who are saying, I don't need to own a car, I'll just use Uber, I might hire it, I'm, whatever. I might just use it as a, uh, as a ride vehicle. Uh, but what that means is that the 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 Uber model, if you like, says, "Well, I want a car that lasts forever because I'm going to just keep renting it out. I don't, I don't want to have to replace it." So there'll be a push on longer, more durable products rather than um, consumable ones. It depends on whether or not you own it and want to get a new model, or if you rent it, lease it, use it, and want a new model. Smart cities are looking at this a lot about the yeah. idea of, of just thinking a bit smarter about the way we live. Um, and that, but that means a big model, big change. So we'll come back to that at some stage. Yeah, absolutely. And leasing is actually um, a lesser known kind of form of product stewardship if it's being managed ethically uh, because there is a real incentive to increase the lifespan. At least increase, maybe not go circular, but it's still a win if you are increasing the life cycle, the lifespan of a product. Yeah. So leasing's that leasing's one of those um, lesser thought of um, strategies that's actually great for things like product stewardship. But we're also got 
uh, you know, things like uh, the light bulb now lasts a lot longer than the old filament light bulb, lasts exponentially longer. So, you know, maybe as a uh, as as an, as businesses, we might get smarter with our product design. We still need the consumers to kick in, though, and I I love the fact that consumers accepted the the lack of plastic bags so easily. I know that. You know, in hindsight, you think, well, of course they would. But at the time, there was a fair bit of question about whether or not shoppers would be able to be retaught. Do you think, do you think consumers have to play a role in this circular economy? Yeah, absolutely. And I th- it's my view that consumers do have to, and my, my, I'm included in this, I might add, take more responsibility for this. The reality is a lot of our problems exist because we want new stuff and we want it cheap and businesses are responding to that. So the easiest way to change things and something that is going to be a challenge for for governments and industry is that behaviour change piece around consumers and these expectations around wanting new things all the time and wanting those things cheap. But we seem to have some early indications that that consumers will will accept a strong argument for changing the the way they consume. Yeah, absolutely. The, the early signs are there more and more. Every time these big surveys, these big credible surveys are run, it does seem like the numbers are growing. And there's a bunch of businesses that have popped up with sustainable business practices and that's their platform, that's their gimmick if you like, that's their marketing thing. And they're popular, they're big brands, they're big businesses, they're becoming sort of titans of industry built on that. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you talking about Canada before, the the Inuits and the Matis people of of Canada have been using circular economy for thousands of years successfully. Absolutely no waste, no waste in in the way they live. And and as with many things, we just have to rethink what we want out of life. And and I think COVID did a fair bit of that. What what structures do we need to put in place to change the conversation? So we've we've talked about a whole bunch of different players in this. But, I know many states have got working groups on circular economy already and, and AI groups got various structures. What, what things do we need to change the conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, AI group itself obviously has been very open about supporting circular economy transition and, um, you know, using it to help achieve our emissions reduction goals and better manage the waste crisis. And, you know, James, it is a crisis. It, it, that sounds like alarmist language, but, you know, when you consider you've got the OECD reporting that, global plastic waste is going to triple by 2060. Um, you know, that's quite quite a scary concept. And now this is not an attack on plastic because plastic is actually a fantastic circular product if it is collected and processed and reused properly. The problem is we haven't been doing that well. And when I say we, I mean globally, we haven't been doing that well. Some places are better than others, but, you know, overall performance has not been great. So if we, Australia and the rest of the world, don't get it together, imagine that kind of plastic floating around in our waterways or or getting dug into our soil. And remembering that that's only one kind of waste. If plastic waste is tripling, other um, waste streams are also going to be growing. Um, So it's it's a huge problem. And as I said, it's a system, it's a system wide change required to address it. Uh, I heard of a business recently that was trying to get to net zero and they were uh, looking at what their carbon, their, their, their current carbon usage was and they discovered two things. One was a lot of carbon was used in getting their people to work, which is interesting. So uh, they're, they're thinking about removing their business to a, a place that was more suitable to 
public transport. Really, you know, a business that's really accepting the challenge. But the other one was that when their supplier, they were a manufacturer, and when their suppliers delivered supplies to them, it often came wrapped in plastic. It came on on non reusable pallets. It came in cardboard, whatever. And the amount of waste that they had in their business from their suppliers was a problem. So that's not so much a product redesign; it's more of a service redesign. Have you heard of such things? Yeah, absolutely. And this is actually a really great example, probably more from the supplier side, of um, how businesses can make small changes that have a big impact and actually make money in doing so because the supplier is paying for all of that plastic and all of that cardboard and all of the labour or the machinery to to wrap it up. And as you said, they've realised it's not actually needed. So there are countless examples of businesses who simply had a look and gone, we don't need this type of packaging. We don't need this type of packaging and saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. Yeah, a great example, isn't it? Because the, the supplier is wasting money on putting that packaging in place and then the buyer has to you know, waste expenses on getting rid of that, uh, that packaging. Uh, it just needs people working together to, 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 uh, to, to get it right, which leads to an interesting question. How, how does a supply chain designer go about designing a circular supply chain? How can a business person learn what to do first? So as a first step, that's the hard part. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to really acknowledge that, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. It's a big task, particularly when you're trying to go more circular in an economy that's still designed to be linear. So- I, had a boss once, I had a boss once that said, Rome wasn't built in a day, but I wasn't on that job. He was an annoying, <laughs> he was an annoying boss. <laughs> Hello, David. Well- Did you as our as our attitude collectively, we are that boss. Really, yeah. we've got. Oh, like, well, nice. we're not on the no. we're not on the circular economy job. We've been going. Oh, problem for later on. Maybe another generation. Maybe another person. Maybe something will get invented. Maybe we'll magically just collect our recyclables and process them properly. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, yeah. uh, we are on the job to build Rome. All of us. <laughs> We're building the so, pyramids, aren't we? We're building the pyramids. Yeah, so we're in without the trenches. Without any waste, without any waste. <laughs> we're in the trenches um, and we do have to work on it. But it's it takes years to change things like packaging design, particularly where there's contracts involved. You may have, you know, 10 contracts associated with the packaging on your product or associated with the product itself. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, it's not something that we can do Quickly, some things can certainly be done quickly, like the example of just taking a bunch of packaging off the shipping. Um, but other projects are longer term, and that's okay. And I think, you know, for those businesses who are looking to go more circular, you know, the business case is there to change the design practices for, for all the reasons that we've talked about. Um, and of course, you know, this is a supply chain podcast, um, it's important to note that one of the points on that that we haven't talked about yet is supply chain resilience. So certain businesses have been really hit lately by being vulnerable to freight costs and delays and material Mm -hmm. shortages. So that's another point on that business plan. But it's going to differ business to business how, how that business case looks and what their resources are like. To, to do something. But I think if everybody was just trying to do, sounds very idealistic, but if everyone was just trying to do something small, maybe get one of their products going circular or clean up their supply chain a bit, um, it would make a huge collective 
difference. So I don't think businesses should be expected to have all the answers and be circular businesses overnight or, or even in two or three years' time. Um, but I do think it's important that all businesses are starting to think about their long-term vision um, and factor that circular transition into it. So small steps and just think about every every part of your supply chain. That's typical supply chain thinking. And what, what you're suggesting is also include no waste into the thinking. Not only complete efficiency of the current systems, but look at what's going out as waste and seeing what you can do to either reduce that waste or reuse that waste. Is that the idea? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's important to note that in a circular economy, recycling can be a bit of a, a failure because a lot of recycling is actually downcycling. So the next life, it's great that it's had a next what's, life. What's, what's downcycling? Yeah. So the idea is basically that a bottle that we recycle should come back in its next iteration as a bottle or something better. Right. Um, but in, in practice, a lot of the time it might come back as a plastic chip on something or it might come back in a road only to be worn away over time. Yeah, right. So we're okay. losing, yeah, we're losing that material. So that's not really circular. It's better than just straight up linear, let's throw it in a landfill or in a, in a river in an impoverished country, which is what we have done. Um, but it, it's, not, it's not circular. So, right. yeah, so we need those people who are making products, supplying products, to be thinking about how they can get their materials back um, and what they can do with those materials to make a like product or give it um, you know, an upgrade rather than a downgrade. I'm assuming that uh, the... The organisations you're involved with, AI Group and the the Centre for Product Stewardship, they give advice on these type of things. Um, I guess that's an ad, but I didn't mean it to be. But I guess you, that's who you go to. Hashtag ad. Uh, yeah, you can, you certainly can speak to the Product Stewardship Centre of Excellence. The Australian government actually has their own Product Stewardship Accreditation process um, that businesses can go through. Quick Google search should bring some info up on that. The centre can help support that. Um, and, yeah, again, hashtag ad, many AI group members are engaged in some phenomenal product stewardship activity. And, again, it's a, it's that whole concept of, um, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. So it might be a small project, but, you know, it's setting us up for bigger projects over time. I will put all those sort of links in the show notes because it's worthwhile putting that there. Uh, what do you think will, will the next – what will be the challenges over the next you know, six months? We've got an increasingly engaged uh, community. We've got a, a new federal government. We've got some pressure coming globally. What's what's going to happen in the next six between now and Christmas? Absolutely. Well, I won't claim to be a futurist, <laughs> but I do think at the moment um, with a new government, it's making sure that everybody's on the same page about what our shared priorities are, um, and there's still a lot of work in the short term, which is really the question, what, what's happening in the short term here, um, between educating governments, uh, the community and businesses about that link between circular economy and preventing catastrophic climate change um, so that the transition to circular economy starts to feel as urgent um, as the clean energy transition is feeling. And obviously there's some uh acute price pressures and things that are adding to that urgency. But outside of that, there was already a really great sense that we had to do something in the energy space. I think there's been less of a sense that we need to do something in the circular space. So I think 
the the next short term challenge is really just educating everybody around the fact that um, you know net zero circular economy inextricably linked, not getting to one without the other. So um, we've got to get cracking. Really, we're all on the on the Rome building project, as I said. Yes, yeah, so it's all about trying to increase the knowledge of circular economy and the urgency. I really did think you were going to use a bad analogy of building Rome. I, I was I was bracing myself for a shocker, but uh, it didn't happen. It's been a great conversation. No, I feel I feel like it worked out because of your <laughs> your your bad boss. <laughs> That's right. Wasn't a bad boss. He was an annoying boss. He was a good boss, um, but um, you know the, all the all the dad quotes. Um, been a great conversation. I can see why you're so good at advocacy because you sold that concept really nicely. It's been great chatting with you. Thanks for joining the show. Uh, and maybe we'll talk in six months and find out how you did in building Rome. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I still love the way that you've excused yourself from the project there because we're all <laughs> on it. I told you that. <laughs> uh, see, this is what happens when you have an advocate. They, they rope you in and you can't get out. That's it. You're trapped. <laughs> Happy to be part of the project. It sounds great. And it's going to be, it is an important issue. And I appreciate you talking to us about all the different parts. All right. Catch you soon. Bye. Thanks, everybody.